God showed the love when I was bad sin. God showed the die for me. Boom, five, eight. God showed the love when I was bad sin. God showed the die for me. Boom, five, eight. God showed the love chosen love God chosen love chosen love God chosen love Boom, five. God chosen love when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chosen love when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chosen love, chosen love. God chosen love, chosen love. God chosen love. Boom, five. First John chapter three. I see Christian in the chat. He's blowing it up. What's up, buddy? I'm excited that you are excited to be here as well, Mary. Good to see you. Brenda. Who else? James. Brad. Hi everybody. Lisa. Hi guys. Well, turning your Bibles to first John chapter three. There's an idea, uh, a teaching in uh, church that says true Christians will never sin. Um, and usually people who bring that kind of concept up will point to first John chapter three. So let's read it. And again, there, there's a concept in an idea, theology, a, a teaching in Christianity. It's called sinless perfectionism, where again, people believe, um, that if you're a true Christian, you will never sin. And they will usually go to this verse. And so the question is, does this passage actually say that a true born-again believer will never sin? Is that what it actually says? Um, I don't believe it does. Okay, showing my cards early. Uh, there are two perspectives. One perspective says that this passage teaches a true Christian will never sin, ever. While there's another perspective that says, uh, no, actually a true Christian will not live in sin as a habitual way of life. And so which one is correct? Let's read and find out. And just so you know, I'm not, I'm not spending my time uh, proving or disproving the concept of sinless perfectionism. We're not necessarily looking at that teaching throughout Scripture. What we are addressing is 1 John chapter 3, which often people use to promote the idea that if you're a true Christian, you'll never sin. Is that what it says? Here's what this passage says in the New King James Version, okay? And I'm, I'm intentionally bringing up the New King James and the King James first to show you what it says in those versions because this promotes for other people the idea that, yeah, if you're a true Christian, you'll, you'll never sin. Really, Chucky? Let's find out. First John 3, 4 says, whoever commits sin, and if your name's Chucky, I apologize, don't be offended. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he, being Jesus, he was manifested to take away our sin. In him there is no sin. Now, here's where people get it. Whoever abides in him does not sin. 
whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. That's what the New King James says. Let's look at what the King James Version says here as well. These are the two versions that kind of send mixed messages for me. <laughs> it's confusing. We'll make sense of it. First John 3, 4, again, in the, in the King James says, Whoever committeth sin, got to add that if, Whoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. I can't, I can't say that without laughing. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Right? Whoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whoever sinneth hath not <laughs> Whoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Look, if you read the King James Version, I'm not making fun of you. I'm, I'm thinking of Megamind. I watched the movie a few nights ago where the... Uh, this, the, he becomes the space dad and he takes up uh, a mentorship role in the life of the, the next superhero and he talks with a, like this so I could just picture him reading this whoever abideth in him sinneth not so the question is is this saying that a true Christian will never sin let me take you to the ESV now and here's what we're going to do okay I think inadvertently I, I, I want to make sure that I'm not justifying sin I'm not excusing sin so let me say it up front I believe, just like what Romans 13, 14 teaches, I believe, just like Romans 6, 1 teaches, that grace is not a license to sin. Are we to sin and continue in it so that grace may abound? Paul says in Romans 6, no way. Romans 13, 14 will also tell us, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So sin is a big deal. I'm not minimizing sin. I'm not belittling it. I'm not justifying it. I'm not excusing it. What I am doing is making sure that we actually understand sin the way the Bible presents it as or presents it to be. And how, what is our relationship with sin now that we are believers? That's what we're trying to tackle. Okay, so I will be honest. The New King James and the King James make it seem like, yeah, if you're a Christian, you'll never sin. It says if you sin, you're not abiding in him. You're not of him. Here's where we find ourselves in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. I just told you where we find ourselves. Here's where we find ourselves. We're going to move our way towards 1 John 3. We're going to get there. But context, context, context is key. Yeah? So let's make sure we understand the overall context so that when we read 1 John 3, regardless of the version, regardless of the translation, we know what it's saying based on the context and the Greek words that are used and the verb tenses, which by the way, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I at least know how to read what other people are saying. It says in the Greek. So first John chapter two, verse 28 is where we find ourselves. It says now little children abide in him. I've done you the, the liberty of uh, highlighting all these different prepositions. You might say relating to Jesus being in him from him of him. Highlighted that in yellow. In red, you'll see things relating to righteousness, love, our identity in Christ. In blue, I contrasted confidence and shame. Little children, abide in him. It's a command. Just like John 15, Jesus says, abide in me. Because just like a, a branch that is cut off from the vine can't produce fruit, neither can you if you're cut off from me. So, little children, abide in him. What's interesting is this idea of being a child is not just speaking to someone's uh, physical age or stature. It's speaking of um, someone who John is writing to. He's calling them children of God. 
And he's going to make that abundantly clear right here in verse 1. We're called children of God now. So just know, he's not like he's talking to infants. He's not talking to actual children. He's talking to people who are children of God. And he's telling them to abide in Jesus. So why is he telling a Christian to abide in Jesus if they're already Christians and abiding in Jesus? Right? Doesn't, isn't that what it means to be a believer? Is that you are abiding in Christ? You are in him through faith? Isn't that, isn't that what it means to be a Christian and a child of God? So why, is he, why does it seem like he's unnecessarily repeating himself? If I'm already in Christ as a child of God, why are you telling me to abide in Jesus? Because there's a daily call on the life of a believer to continue abiding, to stay, to remain, to continue believing. That's why faith is enduring um, by nature, I believe. True saving faith is going to be enduring to the end. But that's not the conversation for today. Little children abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence. When Jesus comes back, will you be confident? A second question to ask is, what is your reason for confidence? Why are you confident? What are you confident about? What gives you a sense of reassurance and self-confidence? Is it in your abilities? Is it in your performance and obedience? Let's keep reading. So he says, if we abide... Well, we have reason for confidence when Jesus appears, which sounds like the second coming. When we see Jesus visibly descend from the clouds, if you're in heaven and, and you're already with him, sweet. But if you're on the earth and you see his second coming, when he appears, you can have confidence if you're abiding in him as beloved children and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. There are people who will shrink back in shame and there are people who will have confidence on the day Jesus comes. It doesn't seem like there's an in-between category. That seems to be the category of believer and unbeliever. Those who are saved and those who are not. Those who are children of God, those who are children of the devil. Those who are children of God, saved, have confidence, right? And they're really believing, are different from those who have shame at his coming. Which maybe they had a kind of confession. Maybe there are people in this category, those who have shame at the coming of Jesus. Maybe there are people who, who um, you know, have a kind of confession or think they belong to Jesus or think they believe the gospel or, or grew up in church and feel a sense of spiritual security. Maybe there are, there are people in that category who also are blatantly opposed to Jesus. Regardless, John makes two categories for us. When Jesus comes back, you'll either have confidence or you'll have shame and you'll shrink back from him. You'll be ashamed. If you know that he is righteous... Which, by the way, John has already told us at the beginning of this chapter. Look, um, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's already told us that Jesus is right, perfect, morally perfect. And there's no blemish on him. Nothing can be improved about Jesus. He is perfect and righteous, upright. Because of that, we know he's righteous. So you can be sure everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him or everyone who practices righteousness is a child of God or everyone who practices righteousness abides in Jesus not because they're practicing righteousness as a way to get into abiding but the practicing of righteousness is evidence that they are abiding so abiding through faith comes first then our life changes and shifts so that we begin to practice righteousness in other words, the practicing of righteousness, the living holy, 
That is the fruit of first believing in the gospel and abiding in Jesus. Then my life will be lived in abiding. Okay? So, here's what you need to understand. Already, up front, before we even get to chapter 3, there's a concept at play that says, if you're a child of God, you will abide in Jesus. And John is encouraging believers, hey, abide in him so that when he appears, you have confidence. So the confidence when he comes back is connected to my decision to abide in him. Not just initially through faith. Because that's what happens when you believe. You're saying, I am choosing to remain or abide in Jesus. There's also a daily decision to continue abiding. To continue remaining. To continue believing. Which is a reflection of your position and your status as someone who is a child of God. So I don't abide daily and obey daily to become a child. I am made a child of God through my faith. The Spirit of God makes me born again when I believe. The initial moment of salvation and faith. But that faith will last a lifetime and it's expressed through the life. So John says, if everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Jesus like is a child of God, is saved, abides in Jesus, has reason for confidence, all these different ways of saying you are secure in Christ. And part of the evidence of that is that your life is lived in what John calls a practice of righteousness. This is a key word as we move forward. The lifelong practice, the majority of your life, the long-term way of living that your life will be marked by. Practicing is a habitual way of life. Not just a moment. So when we get to the concept of sinning and practicing sin, John has already given us a category for what it looks like to be the antithesis of sinning, which is that we practice righteousness. Does that mean we never sin? I would encourage you, not to put words in John's mouth. He didn't say that. He said practicing righteousness. What does that look like? What does that mean? He's going to explain for us in chapter 3. Because there are some people who will come on strongly to this channel. I mean, you'll blow up the chat. And you'll be blowing it up with, you know, if you are a real child of God, you'll never sin. Because look, everyone who's born of God practices righteousness. So you're, you're assuming that practicing righteousness here means you never ever sin. That's the assumption that I don't believe you can afford to make. And scripture doesn't actually back. So we have a few concepts at play. Being a child of God means I'm born of him, means I'm from him, means I abide in him, means I've been placed in Christ through faith. That's my status and identity and my position. I am a child of God. From that identity, my life will begin to change. From that place of being in Christ, it will begin to affect the way I live so that I practice righteousness and I daily abide in Jesus. Is that perfect? Is that consistent? Is that without sin? Let's find out. But it does connect to us having confidence rather than shame at His coming. So here are the two categories. Ready? Those who believe. Those who are born again, are righteous, practice righteousness, and have confidence on the day of judgment. Category number two, those who don't believe, those who don't practice righteousness, 
those who are not born of God, and they shrink back at his coming from him. Whether in terror, whether in frustration and rage and anger, and they hate Jesus, either way, they're ashamed of the life, and it doesn't at all please him. Okay? Now we get to verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Notice, before John breaks open the can of worms called not living in sin, he starts off with love. He transitions from, look, if you really belong to him, if you have real saving faith, you'll see a practicing of righteousness throughout your life. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we get to be called children of God, and so we are. Did you see that? You are who God says you are and who he calls you. What does God call me? Well, now that I have faith, he calls me his own beloved son. Because he says that, that is now my identity. Whether I believe it, whether I accept it, whether I fight against it, whether I struggle to really identify with it, I am who he says I am. I am not the product of my lifestyle. I am not however good I'm living. I am not my performance. I am not my abilities. I am not the sum total of my successes and how much money I have in the bank. Nothing gets to define me except the Father's love for me. That is a key as we move forward. Is that a child of God identifies with the love God has for them. And they spend their life choosing to enjoy and identify with the Father's love. Because if God says he loves you, if God says you are his child, why would you not walk in that reality? Why would you fight against that? Why would you, well, I don't know, like I'm really struggling today. So that now, now your lifestyle changes your identity? I thought Jesus determines who I am. I thought his life, death, and resurrection defines who I am. So if God calls me his child, this is not an excuse to sin or a license to sin. But I will say, if he calls me his child, then throughout my life, whatever I am engaging in, wherever I find myself, if he indeed calls me his own, that's what I am. Even in the midst of the greatest failure or the greatest success, it doesn't change my identity. Because the love of the father being poured out on his children is that he calls them his own and he adopts them despite their failures, not because of their success. God doesn't look at you and go, look how good you've lived. Now you can be my child. He looks at you and he says, look how good my son has lived, Jesus. Now you will be my son because he makes you. He makes it possible for you to become my own child. So it's always my identity, my value is connected to what Christ has done for me. Not what I do for God. That, that's not what determines my value or identity or eternal status. It's Jesus alone. Look at how great the Father loves us. He calls us his children knowing full well everything that we'll do for the rest of our life. Which again is not an excuse to sin. But if you respond to that supposed 
if you if you claim to be a child of God and you go, ah, yes, now I can go and live however I want because God will never change his mind about me. That might be evidence you don't really belong to him. Is the fact that you respond to his grace with a life of sin. So we are. You are who God calls you. What he calls you. What does that have to do with practicing righteousness? Because you don't practice righteousness. You don't live different until God first changes your identity. That's why being born again through our faith happens first. Then our life changes. God doesn't change your behavior first. He changes the very fundamental core essence of who you are. He changes your identity and your status and he calls you something new. You're born again in the spirit so that now you can go and live like a child of God rather than living to become a child of God. We don't live to become anything. We live from a place of being who he says we are. You are who he says you are. Now, the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. So John has already told us in chapter one and two, you know God or you don't. The world, the world system at large and the people who succumb to that dark world system under the influence of the devil, it doesn't know God personally in a relationship sense. We do. Because we know God, we can see ourselves clearly when we look into his beautiful, glorious face and character. I see myself clearest when I look at him because he shows me who I am and who I am, born of the spirit, forgiven, righteous. It's all the product of his grace. So the more I gaze at God, the clearer I'll see myself in the process. Because the world doesn't know God, they also don't know us who come from God. They don't know us or recognize us as what we really are. And we don't need the world to approve of us. We don't need the world to, to affirm our identity and tell me I'm really a child of God. Who, who cares what the world says? I don't care. They're not going to be there on the day of judgment deciding, hey God, you know, that guy, we as the world, we didn't really like him. And God goes, well, if you didn't like him, God's not going to consider the opinion of the world. God makes his own decisions independent of the world. So we know God. The world does not. Beloved. 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 That's who he calls the church. I want you to think about that. This is the same apostle that throughout his gospel will refer to himself as the one Jesus loved. That doesn't mean Jesus didn't love anyone else. It means John has been so changed by the sacrificial love of Jesus. He's seen him hang on the cross. He listened to Jesus tell him while he's hanging on the cross. He tells John, this is now your mother. Take care of her. Mother, this is your son. And, and, and Jesus speaking, John saw everything. He was there uh, with Peter running to the tomb, seeing an empty tomb. Jesus appears to him after the resurrection. He's there when he sees Jesus ascend. John is there for all of it. And it changed his identity so that when he writes his gospel, he doesn't use his name necessarily. He refers to himself as the one who Jesus loved. That is who he is. It's not part of his identity. It's not another aspect of who he is. Like 
the core fundamental essence of John is that he is loved by God. He is loved by God. That's his, that's his position. That's his identity. He looks in the mirror and says, you are loved by God. I'm looking at someone who is beloved of the Father. When that really clicks for you, and you see yourself as someone that God loves, and that's it. Like, I am loved by the Father. Your life will change. Because no longer are you identifying with your successes or your failures or how much money you bring home or, or how great you are to your kids or how good you are to sport. You're not identifying with any other worldly thing. None of those things could ever define you or make you valuable in the first place. Now you're identifying with the love of God, which is infinite, which is perfect, right? So beloved... As children of God, this is who we are. And this is why John will call or refer to his audience as beloved. He's not just saying some endearing term. He's not just using nice, nice language. He's saying, regardless, like if you believe in the gospel for the rest of your eternity, you are not your failures or successes or abilities or, 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 you know, image or or appearance or what people think about you or how influential you are you're none of those things you are beloved of god through your faith in jesus when you choose to identify with that you can enjoy life a little more like wake up tomorrow live today go to sleep tonight thinking wow i am loved by god that's who i am not just something external to me that is who I am at the core. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. So what I've done for you is I've highlighted anything related to being like Jesus or our identity. You know, we're children of God. We're not just called children of God. We are children. You know when you like call something when you call a person something they're not, like, oh, you're so funny, but deep down you know they're not. You're just trying to get get through their dumb jokes so you can move on. You know, you, you call them something they're not. God doesn't do that. What he calls you is what you actually become. You, our identity adapts and changes to the word of God. So if he calls you his child, you become that. You now are that. And you're loved by the creator of the universe. You're loved by the king of kings. The one who is the master of time and space and matter. Who precedes all of this physical reality. The one who has all power and holds the universe together. He loves and chooses to love you and me. We are God's children now. The love the father has for the son is extended to us. And we're invited into his family. To enjoy that love daily. The problem is, when you don't enjoy the love of God, you find yourself straining and stressing and working and worrying and, and burdening yourself with all the stuff God, frankly, doesn't care about. And maybe some of it he does. But all the stuff that won't matter in eternity, you just you get burdened down and you hit the, hit the pillow and then wake up the next day, you feel the same. It's a vicious cycle. You know why? Because you're, you're choosing not to. Recall the love of God. 
I mean, just think about that. Like more today, as much as you can consciously try to try and recall, God loves me, I'm his child. Like that small reminder can have a radical impact on your life. Because then you start functioning and living from a place of knowing who you are rather than trying to earn your identity or trying to become something. With all your successes in life and all the times you'll obey God and all the ministries you'll start, you'll never become more in the sight of God. With all your struggle and weakness and giving into the flesh at times and repenting and, and failing to follow the love of God perfectly, you don't become less in the sight of God. You are his children. That's your identity. And that identity is solidified by Jesus. And Jesus doesn't change. So if I am a son or you are a daughter because of Christ and he never changes, then neither does your identity. Neither does your value in the sight of God. I know you were trained to like look at your parents for a sense of approval. Like I get that. I know that you were trained to like, I got to perform to make them value me more and love me more. That's not how God operates. You can find yourself farther in life and progressing and having more money and having the ideal place and starting nine ministries. God doesn't love you more. You can conquer a sin and conquer an addiction and find freedom. God doesn't love you more. The infinite love of God is fully and completely dispensed to his people. It's poured out on us. But will you enjoy it? So the point is we are God's children, whether people recognize us or not. Society's perception of me doesn't actually change who I am. right? Culture's view of me doesn't actually affect who I truly am. I am who God says I am. Now, what we will be has not yet appeared. And that's why I highlighted all this in green. We're children of God. We're children now. What we will be, we'll be like him, right? We'll be as he is. There's a sense in which right now I'm as much of a child of God as I'll ever be. But I don't see that in a visible, physical sense. I don't see this... Um, this glorified, redeemed, resurrected body yet. So right now, my identity and my spiritual position is what it will be forever. That's not going to change. But my, my actual physical appearance and body doesn't match up with my spiritual status. So that's why we're going to be resurrected from the dead and glorified with Jesus so that our bodies and our physical appearance, however that materially works out, that's going to match up with our spiritual status in Christ. You're going to look like who you've always been. If I were to peer through your body, look straight to the core of who you are, and the, see you the way God sees you spiritually, I'd, I'd be blown away. I would see a child of God. But you don't always see that in a visible, physical representation in my life and body. But what we will be has not yet appeared. I think he's alluding to the resurrected, glorified body when we'll be like Jesus. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. So I don't know what aspect John has in mind of what will be. He just says we'll be like Jesus. That's what we will be. He's not talking about identity or status or position. I believe he's talking about actual appearance. Because when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. 
Now, you and I go, no, we see Jesus now through the eyes of our hearts. But you don't see him with your physical, visible eyes. Yeah, you will. Whatever that's going to look like, you will. You're going to see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So I think what is in mind, the being like him, if we think about how this connects to the, the previous command, right? To practice righteousness and, and um, not live in sin. If we connect this to sin, I think it more has to do with when we see him as spotless and blameless and perfect and holy, we will be resurrected, glorified with him so that we'll be as he is, which is perfectly pure. But in the meantime, if you're really hoping for the second coming, if you're really hoping for Jesus and believing that he's coming back, you're going to live like he's coming back. When you are about to go on vacation, you make preparations for vacation. You know what I mean? You don't just sit on the couch and go, vacation's going to happen. You are actually making decisions and making progress towards that vacation. You're booking the hotels. You're packing up snacks. You're going out and filling the car with gas. You're making all the necessary reservations. You're doing everything in preparation for what you're believing is coming, which is a vacation. It's the same with Jesus. If you really believe he's coming, you'll make the necessary preparations. You'll do the things that make sense for a person who says, yeah, God is going to break open the heavens and descend in glory. And he's going to come back and redeem creation. And he's going to recreate everything so that it's new creation. If you really believe, that sounds insane to an unbeliever, but if you really believe that, your life should be lived in such a way where it looks like you're preparing for that. And part of preparing for or hoping in the second coming is that you're purifying yourself in lifestyle. That's what he says. In other words, if I see Jesus as he is now in the eyes of my heart and I know him better every day, well, I should make the appropriate adjustments to be to live more pure and live more holy and live more like him. And as I do that life that is becoming more and more pure is a proof that, wow, that guy really believes that his God is coming back. Like, I, maybe I don't believe it, but he sure does. And what would happen if the world saw a church that really expected their Savior to come down from the clouds and break open the heavens? What would that look like? How would that influence society? And purity is a part of that. The word purify here is uh, to cleanse from moral defilement. And that's a process. Purity in my lifestyle happens over time. And you might fall back into old habits and cracks and slip and mess up and take a step back, but you're still progressing in purity. Now that lifestyle is not changing your identity and status. My, my spiritual position is that I am eternally and perfectly holy and pure and blameless. And I'm uh, uh, perfectly pure in the sight of God. Right? That's true whether or not my life matches up with it at times or not. So if you tell me you're hoping in Jesus, looking forward to him, believing that he's coming. And the concept of hoping here is not wishful thinking. Where it's like, oh... Break a wishbone, hope he's coming back, right? Cross your fingers. 
the idea of hoping here is confident assurance. Like I know he's coming back. And because I know that, purity will be a mark of my life. At least a pursuit of mine. I'm purifying myself in the direction of Jesus, in anticipation of Jesus. Now, this is where we start to make our way into the, the, the verse that I brought up earlier, right? Which is, everyone who sins is not of God, or everyone who has been born of God will not sin. What does that mean? Here's what I will say so far. 1 John 3, 3. That's where we're at. It tells us that hoping in Jesus results in or will produce a purifying of one's life as children of God. This is the appropriate lifestyle God has called his children to. Um, those who belong to God will live like God is their father. And they'll do what their father said. Not perfectly, not even consistently. But the point is, the verb tense for the hoping here, right, has to be the same verb tense as the purifying of oneself. Because the purifying, here's my grammatical logic, you might say, the purifying here um, is a direct result or proof of the hoping. So where hoping stops, the purifying must stop. The point is, whatever verb tense hoping is, whether that's a lifelong thing or a temporary thing I do in a moment, that has to also be the kind of purifying I'll experience. And the kind of purifying I believe John has in mind is a lifelong purification. Not a temporary seasonal purification, just like the kind of hoping he has in mind here doesn't seem to be like a temporary seasonal hoping where it's like, I hoped in Jesus for a while, it's a lifelong hoping, which will result in a lifelong process of purification and sanctification. So are we speaking of a moment or a continual life of hoping? If it's a lifestyle and a lifelong hoping, I'm just telling you, then it also follows that the purifying has to be a lifelong thing in expectation of the Messiah as well. So, the reason this matters is because the purifying of our life, it's in obedience to God as his beloved child. That purifying is about to be contrasted with the lawlessness or the sin of someone who does not know Christ or hope in him. So again, here's our category. Those who are children of God abide in him are from him, practice righteousness because they're born of him, they have confidence, number six, and number seven, they hope in him and purify themselves in anticipation of a second coming. The unbeliever is not born of God, does not know God, does not believe in God, has shame, shrinks back from Jesus at his second coming, practices sin, and does not purify themselves because they're not hoping in Jesus. Do you see the contrasting uh, individuals here? It's very simple. A child of God contrasted with someone who is not a child of God. So the reason I bring up the purifying and the hoping, okay, is because, again, there are two kinds of people who are being contrasted. 
There are two lifestyles being contrasted. I don't believe John is talking about a Christian and a Christian who stopped being a Christian because they sinned too much. I believe to be consistent with the rest of the letter, we have to maintain the two categories John has been consistently using. He hasn't created a subcategory within Christianity. He hasn't created a subcategory of like, well, someone who believed and truly belonged to God and really was born of God, and then they stopped and were no longer born of God anymore. There's no category for that yet. Okay. So whatever the verb tense of purifying or obedience of a child of God is, it must carry over that if John is contrasting two lifestyles here, then the kind of hoping and purifying the believer experiences is a is going to care is going to be uh, similar to the kind of sinning an unbeliever will experience. Meaning, if a believer experiences lifelong hoping and purification, then uh, someone who is under sin and under the devil and is in unbelief, right? will also be in a, their life is summed up by, or the majority of their life is spent in sinning. It's a lifelong thing. Until hopefully Jesus breaks through and they believe and that stops. But here we have two contrasting lifestyles. That's what I want to, that's what I want to communicate, is two lifestyles being contrasted. Not two kinds of Christians, one who stopped being a Christian and one who's still a Christian. It's unbeliever believer. It's dark and light. Okay, so now we transition to the sin. And just to recall, for those of you who forgot, hold on. Verse 4, 5, and 6, right here. If you read it in the King James Version or the New King James, I believe those are the only two versions. But if you use those two versions, it sounds like a Christian is someone who will never sin. The reason why I don't believe that's true is because of everything I've already said and what I'm about to say. Okay, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. So look. Verse 4 makes a practice of sinning. That sounds very different than what the King James and New King James said. So is it a problem with translators? Did they mess up here and the verb tense is, is one or the other but they messed up? Or is this practicing of sin correct? And it's still consistent with, with what the New King James and the King James Version are saying. In other words, when we read the New King James and the King James, it sounds like a true Christian will never sin. And if you do sin, you're not a child of God. Here in verse 4, though, in the ESV, it says, no, whoever makes a practice of sinning. So is it a moment of sin or is it a practice of sin? I think the ESV being a practice of sinning is still consistent with the New King James and King James when it says whoever commits sin. I think that verb tense just gets fleshed out in the English a bit differently. So whoever makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Key word here is practicing. Do you see it? Does that sound like a moment of sin or someone who fell into sin for a, a second, you know, 
and I'm not ragging on the King James or the New King James. It's go read whatever translation you think is most accurate based on the manuscripts that they're pulling from and go read whatever is easiest for you. Don't compromise truth in the process and get like the message. <laughs> but um that's a commentary, not an actual translation. I would view that as more of a commentary. Or don't go for the passion translation. For those of you that love passion, like have a conversation later. The point is it's practicing. Sin here is explained as lawlessness in this verse. Can we all agree? Can we all agree that it says whoever makes a practice of sinning uh, practices lawlessness. That's what sin is. It's lawlessness. So to sin is to live without the law. It's to be an outlaw. John explained what sin is. It is to violate, transgress the law. Lawlessness. So, it is true, and I, this is where I'll give people the benefit of the doubt, it is true that even a moment of sin is a violation of the law. But this lawlessness being connected to a practice seems to note more than just a moment. It seems to be communicating a way of living. The majority of someone's life, how someone functions in relation to the law of God. So the kind of sin here, and this is not an issue of semantics, it, we don't need to like, I don't know, overcomplicate things, but the kind of sin in mind here seems to be one who lives as an outlaw. They live or practice lawlessness. Not one who is lawless in a moment, right? Because again, the two categories are believer, unbeliever, darkness, light, those who belong to Jesus, those who don't. So the verb attached to sinning here, and again, this is where I wish I could, maybe I'll start taking Greek classes for the sake of all of you who doubt my ability to research. But in the Greek, the word that is actually attached to sin, like the, the tense that's assigned to sin in the Greek, um, can be most accurately translated committing sin or sinning. Meaning, let's just go past translations for a minute. And let's just talk straight Greek verb tenses. And again, as uneducated as I may be, I can still read what scholars are saying. It's not So I can read what tense in, in the Greek is apparently attached to the sinning here. It's in the present active form. Meaning, this can be translated, everyone who is committing sin or everyone who is sinning is practice, practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So it's in the present active form, which means it's an ongoing action. The sin here is not a moment. If you run to the King James or the New King James, it does seem like it's in a moment. But the verb tense in the actual Greek, it destroys that idea. Um, whoever commits sin or uh, whoever abides in him does not sin. The verb tense that is attached to sin here is a is a um, an ongoing action. It's in the present active form. So whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. Whoever is committing sin or whoever is sinning as a mark of their life, they have not seen or known Jesus. They don't. That's what's being said here. That's my uh, verb tense argument. That's not the only argument I have. Okay. So I understand the way the KJV and the New King James translates this. And it seems to communicate sin as a moment, but 
consistently with the context and according to the actual verb tense in the Greek, it's noting a lifestyle, an ongoing committing of something, which is the sin. So people assume the sin here is spoken of an individual Christian who struggles in a moment and gives in and they don't. They truly don't believe in Jesus because they messed up one time. It's talking about continual. So John is speaking of a sinful lifestyle, uh, not um, which is composed of countless moments of sin. He's not speaking of an individual who is in Christ and believes and is born again and just struggled in a moment and fell into sin. This is speaking of someone that continues in sin or their lifestyle is marked by ongoing sin, which you might say that assumes unrepentance and lack of conviction. If a person can continue in habitual sin as their way of life, and that's their lifelong experience, you and I would say, well, there doesn't seem to be the presence of conviction. There doesn't seem to be the presence of, um, of repentance, right? Otherwise, there would be a turning away. There'd be a desire to change. There'd be a, a conviction of this is not okay. God is not honored with this, and I want to change. And you might struggle with it and fight the flesh and give into it at times, which I can totally relate to. But the point is, I am of the, the belief that this passage teaches us someone who is truly a child of God. And I'll keep reading. I'm not done. Someone who is truly a child of God will not continue in a lifestyle of sin. It's not possible. Not because their free will is eliminated, but because of the nature of their new heart and the nature of their new nature in Christ, because they have a new mind and a new set of desires and, and their heart is now, they have a, a spirit that's alive and the spirit of God fills them and, and now the law is written on their heart and mind, all these different things. And God actually says in Deuteronomy that those in the new covenant would actually, he said, I will cause them to walk in my ways. So it's not to the neglect of free will. It doesn't violate free will. It's what you are desiring. I desire, when I come to God, I'm saying, forgive me. I want to live for you. Okay, God's going to put the necessary things in place in my life so that I do follow him into eternity. So that I do not live in a lifestyle of unrepentant, habitual sin. My, my lifestyle will not be marked by continual sin. That's what I'm saying. If you really belong to Jesus. And, and how you quantify that, how you even like, what metric you use, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying... There are people who think, I can believe in Jesus, and, I, and I'm going to heaven, even though I live in unrepentant sin as a habitual way of life. And I would say, mm, John's pushing against that. He is. Like, we cannot get around this. But I don't believe John is saying, hey, if you sin, you're not a Christian, if you ever sin. So John will say that this kind of life of practicing sin, practicing lawlessness, Committing sin as an ongoing action. That's not possible for a believer. With all the different things God puts in place, you might say all these different defense mechanisms to keep us from going into that. That way of life is not compatible with our new nature. So I think, just according to verse 4, and we'll move on. So far we seem to be working with someone who is an unbeliever. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin. We'll address that. In him is no sin. There is no sin in Christ. 
Now, whatever le- terminology you want to use, um, what is it? First Corinthians. He who, knew, who, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, we know that Romans tells us that sin was punished in the flesh of Jesus. Sin was condemned in the flesh. So in Jesus, there is no sin. There is no darkness. All sin, not only is he perfect, not only is he blameless, not only does he fulfill the law perfectly, but in Christ, those who position themselves in him through faith, you and I... Because we're located in Jesus, who handled all sin and paid it in full, we're not tainted by sin in our identity and position and status. Now, our body still has fleshly desires. This world still encourages sinfulness. So in that sense, you might say, uh, our life can be tainted with sin. But the core of who I am, my position in Christ, is absent of sin. Because Jesus paid the debt in full. He handled all sin. He took away sin by actually letting sin be embodied in his flesh so God could condemn sin in the flesh. So now anyone who trusts in him, anyone who is positioned in him also has no sin. So what does it mean that Jesus took away sin? Whatever the sin is that's being described in verse 4, right? John tells us in verse 5, Jesus took it away. So let's highlight this for you. Sin, sorry, listen, sin and sin. Okay, sin, 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 sin. Don't be sin-focused, don't be sin-centered, don't be a sin-seeking missile, but don't justify sin either. Okay, there's a way to actually manage sin in your life. And I'm learning how to do that too. Sin here has been taken away by Jesus. So the question becomes this, for those of you that think, that a person can lose, walk away from, forfeit their salvation after being born again and having a new nature and coming into Christ and being a part of the family of God. For those of you that think, this is a question I want to ask you and pose. Does Jesus take away certain arbitrary moments of sin? Or on the cross, as Jesus is hanging there and finishing what he came to do, Does he take away all sin across human history? In other words, does Jesus deal with the entire life of sin on the cross and my entire life of sin? Or does he only deal with arbitrary moments of sin that he chooses? Maybe it's my past sins before I come to Jesus. Maybe it's only the sins I'm really, really sorry for. Uh, is, Is God selective about the sin he forgives for his people? When you're in Christ and you're born again in the Spirit, does God look at you and only forgive a category of sin? Well, only your past sins or only the sins you're really convicted about and only only the sins you confess. Or does he deal with the entire person's life? So the question becomes, what does it mean that Jesus takes away the sins of the world? And you go, you just added that in. It doesn't say of the world. Let's just stick to 1 John and go back to chapter 1. Okay. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. We'll start with this. My little children, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin. Okay? But if anyone does sin, listen closely. 
if anyone does sin. Who's he talking to? Who's the anyone here? Well, even the children he's writing to. What do you mean children? The children of God. Even if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. At what point, like if I'm a Christian right now and I have an advocate that represents me and pleads my case before the Father and he defends me and he protects me and, he, and he's taken away my sin, at what point do I no longer have an advocate? When I've sinned too much? When I decide, like at what point? Does Jesus say, you know what? I'm done being your personal advocate. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the payment in full, the appeasement of wrath for our sins. And you go, see, only the believers, not for ours only, also for the sins of the whole world. And you go, oh, no, he's not just talking about everyone. He's talking about the people who are scattered around the world who believe. So you think verse 2 says, Jesus is the payment for the sins of only those who believe? John is going to consistently use the word world to refer to the unbelieving system that's opposed to God or the people who are in that system. So the question then becomes for me to you, where does it say that this is only for believers? Why would John tag on also for the sins of the whole world why does he do that and i think this is going to answer the question of does jesus when the minute you believe does he forgive you only of certain sins only of a category of sins or does he forgive you of all sin i think this gives us an idea of what that answer is if jesus pays for the sins of not just his own people and i'm not a universalist I'm not saying everyone gets in heaven. I'm saying everyone has an opportunity for their debt to be paid by someone else being Jesus. He's made the payment in full. It's like he purchased something for anyone, but it only benefits those who come and receive it. Right? So are all sins handled in Christ? Yes. Are they all taken away through his precious blood. Yes. All sin is. But that sacrifice only benefits those who believe. It's available to everyone. The whole world. John 3.16. God so loved what? The world. Well, only those who uh, were appointed to be, to be saved. Really? It says that? Let me take you to 1 John 1.7-9. Listen, 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 Linda, Linda, listen, if we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light and you go, I thought he's the light of the world. Well, he's also in the light in terms of like, here's what it looks like to live holy. He's lived that perfectly for us. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, well, we have fellowship with one another and watch, watch, watch the blood of Jesus, his son, referring to the father, I guess here cleanses us from all sin. For, for those that are really wondering, does God only forgive me of certain sin? Or does God only forgive me of my past sin? Or does God only forgive me of the sin that, I, that I'm aware of and I can repent of and I'm sorry for? Bro, it says the blood of Jesus, the eternal, infinite, sufficient uh, 
priceless blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And you go, well, I don't know. Well, he's faithful if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. It doesn't say some sins. It doesn't say past sins. Just our sins in general. And he's faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, if you haven't committed sin and unrighteousness yet, how can it be atoned for if it hasn't happened and it's going to happen in the future? Think of it like this. From the vantage point of the cross, all of my sin was in the future. Was it not? So if the cross extends forward and backward in time, all the way to the beginning and all the way to the end, and the blood of Jesus covers all of human history, where do you get the idea that only my past sins are covered? I'm just showing you, Scripture teaches just in 1 John alone. Jesus cleanses us from all sin, all unrighteousness, the entirety of a person's life, not just the sin up to the point of faith. And Jesus is the sacrifice, not just available to those who believe, it's available to anyone. So when we get to chapter 3, when it says he takes away sin, bro, in fact, here, read Romans 8. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. By sending his own son for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In whose flesh? In the flesh of his own son. Why did Jesus have to take on a physical human body? Not only to be one of us to represent us. But also in his actual physical body and flesh. Sin, like the concept of sin itself, was condemned in the flesh of Jesus. Do you see it? Does it say most sin, partial sin, past sin, sin you are really sorry for? It says sin. There just, there's no reason to categorize it or be any more specific. Sin has been condemned in the flesh of Jesus. So we know so far that Jesus takes away all sin by his sacrifice. And then you know what John adds? Not only that he takes away sin, but in him there is no sin. What does that mean? What does that mean? Here's what I will say. If Jesus is sinless, which we agree... And he who knew no sin became sin, however you make sense of that, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And then we're positioned in Jesus, like we're tucked away in a rock and Jesus is that rock. Then we are extended and take on his very human identity as perfect, as righteous, as holy, as blameless. And we are, God declares us to be without sin as well. Because of who is covering us. So that when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of his son. So this isn't just talking about Jesus' sinless nature. 
it's connected to his action of taking away sin for the world. It's available to anyone, but it benefits those who are positioned in him through faith. And it applies to us who believe. So did Jesus remove our ability to sin? Or did he give us the freedom from the penalty of sin and the power of sin? And then one day, does he not promise to free us from the presence of sin? Seems to me like Jesus takes away sin in terms of dealing with the penalty of sin entirely, cleansing us from all sin entirely, so that now in the sight of God there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're in him, then your life cannot be marked by a, a practice of sinning. Meaning, for those that think um, you can be in Christ and born again, and then one day you find yourself living in sin and you reject God and you're a child of the devil again. For those of you that think you can forfeit your salvation or lose it or walk away from it, here's what I would say. If I am currently... Let me take a sip of coffee before I say this. This is going to take all the brain juice I have. If I am currently in Jesus, okay, there is a promise and uh, a, an absolute statement God makes, which is no one who is in my son can live in sin or practice lawlessness. That is true of me. Okay. So the question becomes, how is it that you leave Christ and live in sin if you indeed can lose your salvation, how is it that's possible if God already makes a definitive statement about those who are in Christ, which removes the opportunity and the ability of a child of God to live in sin? It's not possible. Like once you are in Christ, this statement and promise becomes true of you. So either God is a liar or there's some way around his word or, or we, we found a loophole in, his, in, his, in his, his promise or the person who does live in sin and wanders away or never comes back, dies in unbelief and they had a confession and they looked like they knew Jesus. Well, they could not have known him. Otherwise, they would not have been able to live in sin. It's not possible. In my estimation, that logic is flawless, but I'm sure someone's going to find a workaround and email me about it. Either I'll delete it or I'll actually look at it, depending on the heart that you bring to that email. Verse 6 says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. So you're going, well, where's the statement? It's right here. No one. And there goes the blender. It's either my sister or my mom. It's one of the girls, right? Chocolate drinks. No one who abides in him. So the question becomes, hey, when you believe, is it true that you are now abiding in Jesus? Yes. So in other words, you can say it like this. No one who believes, has faith in the gospel, is born again, is a child of God. No one can keep on sinning who is a child of God. It's not possible. He removes the opportunity. It's not a potential. If you're a child of God, living in sin, it, it's, it's not compatible. It's no longer possible for you. You have the spirit. You have a new heart. You have a new mind. Does that mean you can't struggle with sin? No. Does that mean you'll never give in to sin? You'll never sin again? No. He's talking about a practice where the majority of your life, however you quantify that, whatever metric you use, where the majority of your life is lived in sin. It's not possible. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. This knowing is not just informational where you're like, I know a lot of Bible verses. It's not what it's about. It's you have a relationship with God. You have a friendship, an abiding friendship with him. You're invested in that relationship. You see evidence of that relationship where he's your father and you're his child. You, when you know God and you're born of him in his spirit, you can't keep on sinning. And if someone does keep on sinning for the majority of their life, no conviction, no remorse, that's the assumption, then they've neither seen or known God. That's the bottom line. Backsliding, I don't even know where people get that concept or what you even mean when you say backsliding. Um, right here, let's just keep reading, okay? The question becomes, according to verse 6, does John mean a believer can't sin at all or that a believer won't live in a habitual way of unrepentant sin? And I think, again, the verb tense of sinning here, even if you read it in the KJV and the New King James, it's the same verb tense in the Greek. It has to be the same as the verb tense here. There's consistency across the board, meaning abiding negates the kind of sinning he has in mind. Not possible. You genuinely abide in Christ through faith, keeping on sinning, not possible. God will only let you go so far. Conviction will break through. God will stop you in your tracks. You belong to him. Discipline will come into play. There are all different ways God will keep his children from living in sin. Sometimes it's going to hurt. You get a spanking. But you go, mm, you know what, that spanking was much needed. Thank you, God. And it keeps you from sin. And you go, well, uh, you know, abiding here is my decision daily, right? So is John talking about temporarily abiding in Christ? Or eternally abiding in Christ? Is there a category in Scripture for someone who temporarily abides in Christ? Stays, is positioned in Him? Again... This seems to be speaking of a lifestyle, abiding into death. If we're going to be consistent about with how John has used the word abide in the rest of this letter and in the gospel of John, which, by the way, let me just bring up a few verses for those of you that are like not convinced. Look, the lifestyle of abiding is actually contrasted with a lifestyle of sin. So abiding here doesn't refer to a season or a moment. Just as much as sinning here doesn't refer to a season or a moment, but a lifestyle. Okay? So John has in mind living in sin, which proves you aren't living or abiding in Christ. Okay. Let me pull up my chat. For some reason, that chat is not coming through. Okay. Ah, here we go. Now I can see the chat. For some reason, it was stalled. Let me take you to 1 John 2, 17. Because we're just going to stay in the letter, okay? Well, let's just stay in the letter. We just got a letter. Blues Clues fans, put your hands up. 1 John 2, 17 says, The world is passing away. That is an ongoing, continual reality. Until the climax of God's plan... And the pinnacle of his plan being that the world actually passes away. And the world is rolled up like a robe and changed like a garment. And new creation comes in, right? Heaven and earth will pass away. So the world is passing away. 
It's an active thing until that moment it is actually done and passes away and new creation comes into play. Along with its desires. Now look at the contrast. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So abiding here doesn't refer to a season or a moment. It's John, at least consistently in his letter, is not going to use at all abiding as something that happens in a moment for a while. If you're abiding, it's eternally. If you're abiding, it's lifelong. <laughs> if you're abiding, it lasts into eternity. It, there's no way around it. Like to abide is to be in Christ for eternity. There's no, there's no category I've found in scripture for someone who abides temporarily and truly belongs to God, is a child of God, has the spirit, born again. I don't see a category for that, especially here in 1 John. How many times do they need to blend whatever they're making, guys? Let's be honest. You hear that background noise? The world is passing away with its desires. That's contrasted to the person who remains or abides forever. When the world is gone and new creation comes in, Guess who will be remaining in the new creation? The people of God. Why? Because they abide in faith. And the moment you are born again and you're grafted into Christ, that is a forever lifelong thing. I, I don't... Mm, uh, I'm not going to get into it. Verse 24. Same chapter. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What's that? The gospel. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So can you hear the message of the gospel and not let it abide in you? Sure. Everyone on the planet who is an unbeliever has heard a dimension of the gospel uh, to a degree. But not everyone believes. right? So you can hear something you don't believe in. You can hear something you don't receive. That's what it means to actually let it abide in you. Is you receive it like good soil. So the point is here, it's a call on the believer. Look, the gospel will abide in you. And you will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise he made to us. Ready? Set? Eternal life. Who's the us? Those who abide in the Son and the Father. Well, when do you abide in the Son and the Father? Well, when you believe in the gospel and that takes root in your heart. Well, well, well no more workarounds. You're out, of, you're out of ammunition. Eternal life is for those who abide. It's a promise. The minute you're, you abide in Christ through faith, the minute that happens, there is a promise God makes to you called eternal life. You will not just live forever, but live forever in the presence of God and know him intimately. John 8, 31 and 32. This is John's gospel. Same author. For those of you that are like, stay in the same letter. This is pretty much the same letter, just in a gospel form. <laughs> and so many repeating themes and out of brain juice. John 8, 31 says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, okay, so who is Jesus talking to? The Jews who believed him? He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Interesting. Just a little gold nugget for you guys. In the Gospel of John, when people are said to believe, that does not mean saving faith. They believe a set of things about Jesus. 
they believe in him to be something that not as necessarily true. Maybe they believe in a in a partially true version of Jesus, or or they believe in him uh, in a in a way and that's like, yeah, he's gonna do some of the things you're thinking he's gonna do, but nah, you don't really see him as he is. In John's gospel, consistently, when the crowds or the people who are listening are are said to believe, it's don't think saving faith. And I could spend a lot of time going through that, but if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Why would he say that to people who apparently believe? Because there's a kind of surface level shallow belief, like James 2.19, uh, or, or James 2 talks about the demons, even they have faith, even they believe. Okay, so there's a kind of believing where you go, yes, that's true, I acknowledge the facts, but do you receive it, and do you uh, submit to it? Like, do you uh, trust in that? Do you believe that message in terms of giving your life over to that? Um, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. What is a true disciple? Someone who abides in his word. Yeah? Go down to verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced. Ah, this is the wrong verse. Hold on. Ah, bummer. I don't remember what where it was. Was it John six fifty six? Ah yes. Okay. Look at this. Look at how Jesus defines abiding. For those of you that are quick to like make it something it's not, watch. Whoever feeds on my flesh, and you're like disgusting, not literally, and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So consistently in John 6, the feeding on Jesus' flesh, the drinking his blood, is symbolic of coming to him and believing. Um, coming to him to have life. Uh, eating of the bread of life that he gives. Um, whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever comes to me. All these different ways of saying, look, if you believe which is to spiritually uh, benefit from his flesh and his, and his sacrifice. When you do, you abide in him and he abides in you. So abiding, while it is going to be a lifelong thing, abiding starts the minute I truly believe. That's what it means. I mean, that might even be synonymous with believing is abiding. And it lasts a lifetime. Okay, let's go back to verse 6. I think we're nearing the end. This one right here. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Is that true? Is that a true statement? Well, it depends on what you mean by sinning. I'm not trying to find a workaround. The sinning here is a lifelong, again, process. It's where long-term your life is summed up by sin. The majority of your life is sin. Okay? And if you abide in Jesus, which, by the way, happens the minute you believe, you will not keep on sinning. And if you do, you don't know him and you, don't, you have not actually seen him as he is. And I love that John brings in this concept of, yeah, yeah, you haven't seen him yet. But he also said, we will see him as he is. So like I said, as believers, we see Jesus for who he is in our hearts, right? One day we'll see him with our actual eyes and we will be blown away. You'll be blown away. So the presence of this kind of sin 
that he's referring to the practice of sinning, the keeping on, right? The fact that you do that proves you don't know Jesus. Now the question becomes, is this speaking of a Christian or an unbeliever? If you think this is talking about a Christian, it wouldn't be true. If you, if you think this refers to a Christian who is born in, you know, born again, and then they sin or they sin too much, and then now they're outside of Christ and they've wandered into unbelief. If you think it's talking about someone who forfeited their salvation, this would not be true. Because they had known him at one point. They had seen him. And John says, no, no one who does keep on sinning has seen him or known him. That's talking about, yeah, you've, you've never seen him or known him. So it, this couldn't be true of a believer. This couldn't be. Therefore, we're talking about an unbeliever because they've never known or seen Christ. Whatever this kind of sin is, again, it's something a Christian cannot do. And you go, I don't like that because it violates free will, bro. And you're getting a little weird. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. God talks about the new covenant. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart, which is going to come way later down the road. And the heart of your offspring, the true spiritual offspring of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? The true, those who actually follow in the ways of the true seed of the woman being Jesus, right? God will circumcise their hearts. New covenant reality. So that, why does God circumcise our heart? What does that mean? He takes your heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh that is receptive and sensitive to the things of God. Okay. When that happens, here's why he does it. It's so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and so that you may live. In other words, loving God is made possible by the circumcised heart he gives us. Ezekiel 36 says, I will put my spirit within you, also a promise for the new covenant, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Is that against your free will? No. You asked for a right spirit. You asked to be made alive. You asked for God to, to, to lead you into life. He's doing that by giving you his spirit, by making your spirit alive, by giving you a new heart and a new mind and a new nature. And by doing that, he's causing you, not against your free will, but in cons like aligned with your free will, he's causing you to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Is that what God promises for his people? It is. That's part of why a true born again child of God cannot live in sin. It's not possible. Hebrews 8, 8 through 12. And I know you guys all have a category of backsliding. You guys can all envision someone that you know who really, really looked like the new Christ. And, and you would never say they didn't know Jesus. I mean, and then all of a sudden they walk away and they die in unbelief. Every one of us has a person in mind for that. I'm just trying to show you in 1 John 3, I at least, just in 1 John, don't see a category for someone who knew Christ and then didn't. Hebrews 8, 8 through 12. God finds fault with them, being the old covenant way of doing things. And he says, hey, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is Jeremiah. Uh, he's quoting Jeremiah 31. This is what God promises in Jeremiah. Look. 
when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. That does include believing Gentiles, by the way. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. So God makes us a pivot. He makes a pivot and he says, yeah, the covenant that I made with Israel in the Old Testament, it's not going to be like the new one that I make. In what ways? Let's find out. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That was the old covenant, right? And he goes, they did not continue in my covenant. Is that true? Yeah, read the Old Testament. They did not continue in the covenant of God. You guys that are defining backsliding with Old Testament scriptures, it's right here. They didn't continue in his covenant, right? And God says, so I showed no concern for them. This is the covenant. As if he's saying, here's the difference between the covenant I'm about to make and the covenant I made in the Old Testament. Here's the difference. I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws in their minds, the immaterial part of them. I'll write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And he goes, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Their past sins, the sins they're really sorry for, it just says their sins. You don't have to put a category on it. It's talking about sin in general. So look, this new covenant for those who are in Christ and are born again, filled with the Spirit, you are in the new covenant. Woohoo, that's fantastic. Here's the difference. One of the key differences between the new and old covenant. Not the only, but one of the key ones. The problem with the old, they didn't continue in it. So what God is going to do in the new, he's going to improve what was lacking in the old. He's improving in his son. And what he does is he gives us a new mind and heart and now he's our God and we're his people. But that connects to us being able to continue in the covenant, Ezekiel 36, walking in his statutes, which doesn't mean we're robots, doesn't mean it's against our free will and without our conscious effort. It means the spirit of God inside of us who has made our spirit alive, who's given us a new heart and mind and a new nature. We are now fitted for a life that will be marked by enduring faith and practicing righteousness. Though we stumble into sin and we might fall, which I don't want to get into that right now. Okay, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Hmm, what do you mean? Well, whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Is John saying that if you do enough righteous things, you'll become righteous? No. That would fly in the face of the gospel. That'd be completely opposite of what the scripture teaches. You can't be righteous on your own. Jesus has to come and be righteous in our place and then make us righteous through our faith. That's the grace of God. So he's not saying, hey, practice righteousness enough and you'll be righteous. He's referring to the fact that a righteous life, a life that is marked by progressive holiness and sanctification, that life is proof that that person has really been made righteous and holy. So the question then becomes, hey, practicing righteousness, does that mean I will never sin? No. He's making a category, two categories that are con uh, contrasted. 
those who practice sin, those who practice righteousness. People who practice sin as a habitual way of life, they still do morally good things that help people. They still have moments of love and charity and, and kindness and generosity. Do those good things earn them anything in heaven? No. Do they, do they cover their sins? No. Can a believer also, also, um, you know, do things at times that are inconsistent with their nature where they're like, ah, I gave into the flesh. That's not who I want to be. It's, if you read first John chapter two, which we already did. Okay. It already says there's provision for sin and the people of God, which again is not an excuse, not justifying sin. Don't put words in my mouth. Verse eight says, look, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The devil's been sinning from the beginning. So notice the practicing here. Do you see it? Here, in other words, here's the easy way to sum up this whole thing. If your life is marked by holiness and obedience and sanctification, and you see the majority of your life is marked by righteousness, well, that's good evidence you are of God. If the majority of your life is marked by sin and flesh and evil and worldly stuff and no conviction, no, no remorse, no repentance, then you're probably, that's a good indication you're of the devil, regardless of what you say. Well, I believe in Jesus. I've been going to church since I was three. I, frankly, Tommy, I don't care. I look at your life and I, that's, it's a pretty strong testimony and witness to the fact that you might not know God. So here's what we know. Righteousness here is contrasted with sinning, right? John wouldn't be contrasting a lifestyle of a Christian with a, he, he's not contrasting a lifestyle of someone who's a Christian versus a lifestyle of someone who's a, who used to be a Christian and now they became an unbeliever. It's Christian unbeliever. It's dark light. It's of the devil of God. It's um, pretty, he's contrasting two patterns of life, not moments. So the practicing righteousness here is a way of life, not just a moment. Uh, practicing righteousness implies long-term living, not just doing righteousness in a moment. So if this person who practices righteousness is being contrasted with the person who sins, then the sinning also has to be a lifestyle. That's been consistent throughout this letter. So John is not saying... Um, you know what, here's what I will say. I want to make sure I say helpful things. When John is comparing two lifestyles, he's essentially comparing two natures, two identities that are expressed in that lifestyle. So those who are righteous in Christ, who is righteous, will live righteous. Does that mean they never sin? No. The sinner who is not righteous because he's not abiding in Christ, he will um, live unrighteous because he belongs to the devil and his life reflects that. And then we'll get to verse nine in a minute. James is getting antsy. I know you want to see it. We'll talk about that in a second. So I'm just trying to show you when people bring up this verse to, to promote the idea that a Christian will never sin. That to me is just as destructive as seeing grace as a license to sin. You would disagree probably and go, no way. Sin's way more destructive. Really? How often does Jesus push against self-righteousness, which is sin? 
And does the concept of sinless perfectionism, does that encourage self-righteousness and pride? Yeah. Is self-righteousness and pride just as deadly as someone who is uh, seeing grace as a license to sin? Equally as deadly. Both condemning. Self-righteousness and not clinging to Jesus and thinking, I'm morally good. I can do enough good. I'll be sinlessly perfect on my own. Forget Jesus. That condemns you to the same place that sin does because you're still covered in sin and not receiving the sacrifice. So I am not saying, pause, I'm not saying that you're not a Christian if you think you can be sinlessly perfect. What I would recommend is really evaluate what you believe the gospel is because sometimes someone who thinks they can be sinlessly perfect by the power of the Spirit, it's an indication that they're leaning on their own righteousness rather than Christ. Not always. I'm not making an absolute statement. This is not a blanket statement. Just what I've seen. Okay. So, 1 John 1, 8, if you go back, um, man, this is heavy. It says, look, if we say we have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. The truth is not in you. And you think, no, this is talking about someone who is an unbeliever and they don't believe there's any sin and they don't come to Jesus at all. This isn't talking about a believer who is in Christ and lives in such a way where they have no more sin. It doesn't say that there's two categories within that. It just says, look, if you claim you have no sin, truth is not in you. Now, that can be someone who's denying their own sinfulness and saying, I don't need Jesus. That can also include people who claim to know Jesus and think, I don't sin anymore. I don't, you know, by the power of the Spirit, I've mastered sin and I never sin anymore. That might be, not always is, but might be evidence the truth is not in them. To think that, to have that self-righteous mentality, it's so destructive, man. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. Is this talking about, and his word is not in us, just to clarify. So, yeesh. Verse 8 says, look, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of a devil. What are those works? The sin that's of the devil that he tries to get people to do. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. What does that mean? Same thing he said here. He appeared to take away sin. So I'm not trying to render believers powerless and think, well, just set yourself up to sin now. No, don't set the bar low. But don't create a new standard in God's place and go, well, I'm going to set my own. God says, look, pursue perfection. Pursue Christ who is perfect. And if you mess up along the way, there is an advocate. There's grace. There's mercy, there's forgiveness, not to justify sin. Again, if you see grace as a license to sin, that might be an indication you don't really know Christ. I'm just telling you straight up. So, yeah, believers will struggle. I'm not trying to set the bar low. Aim for Christ. When you say you're following Jesus, you're saying I'm following someone who's perfect. I'm trying to be perfect and live perfect. Not to get into heaven, right? 
but from a place of knowing I'm already good because Jesus covers me. There are people who try and live perfect to get into heaven, and then there are people who try and live perfect like Jesus because they they so love God, they want to give Him every dimension of their life. I want to give God my best. Why would I settle for less? Why would I strive for less than what God has enabled me to go? I, technically, by the Spirit of God, you know, He has empowered you to resist sin. And one day sin and the presence of sin will be gone. It'll be great. But Jesus destroying the works of the devil here, um, again, seems to be him paying for our sin in full with his precious blood, which does take away our sin. It takes it away and the penalty of sin with it for those who have faith in his name. Now, verse 9. This concept of the works of the devil being destroyed at the cross, Jesus taking away sin, it relates to verse 9. Ready? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. The question now becomes, how many times do you got to repeat yourself, John? Like, you've said this 90 different ways. Like, we get it. <laughs> you, you are beating a dead horse. We get it. No one born of God will practice sin. We get it. You don't understand. The Gnostic teaching that's leaking into the church is promoting the idea that, no, you can sin however much you want. Because it doesn't matter what you do with the physical body. Your spirit's intact. You're good. No, there's a connection between the physical life and my spiritual nature. It does matter. God gave you a body and a life to honor him with. So, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? That's, what, that's where you and I go, why? And I showed you in Hebrews 8, the new heart, the new covenant. I showed you Deuteronomy 30 and Ezekiel 36. But now let's let John answer for himself. Ready? God's seed abides in him. Whoa. Now that's different. That's different. That's a different dimension to why it is that a child of God can't practice sinning and get away with it long enough where it's now your lifestyle. It's not possible. Because if you're a child of God, God's seed abides in you and he can't keep on sinning. Why? He's been born of God. So look at the two reasons why a child of God cannot, not even just will not. He takes it a step farther. He's already said, you know, a child of God will not. Now he takes it a step further and goes, just so you know, someone who's born of God cannot keep on sinning. And you go, why? There's two reasons. Because the seed of God that abides in us, which I believe refers to the Holy Spirit, in the message of the gospel, which bears fruit, and also because of our new nature and identity in Christ. I am born of the Spirit. I am now from God. My citizenship is in heaven. God is my Father, and His ways become mine, and I have His Spirit within me, and my Spirit's alive, and I have a new nature and a new heart and a new mind, and all those things come together to help the believer, guarantee that a believer will not practice sinning. And if it's not abundantly clear now, I don't know what will convince you. So look, this is key. The Spirit of God abiding in a person, which causes us to be born again spiritually, okay, those two ideas go together to be our sin preventative. Doesn't mean you'll never sin. It's the practice, the lifestyle. 
the habitual way of way of life. So look, in order for a born again child of God to go back to a life of sin or unbelief, the abiding presence of God's spirit would first have to leave them in order for that to be possible. So there are steps to this. Logically, it follows that before I can enter into a lifestyle of sin, if I'm a believer right now and I'm born again, before I can even get into a lifestyle of habitual unrepentant sin, first, the spirit would have to leave me. And second, somehow, I'd have to be unborn of God so that now my nature is compatible with a lifestyle of sin. Think about that. Because God says a born-again Christian is not able to practice sin or live in unbelief once they have the abiding seed of his presence or the gospel. However you want to work that out, it negates the possibility. Now, from the mouth of John, it becomes an impossibility. Not even an incompatibility. Impossibility for a true born-again Christian to ever end up in a lifestyle of sin or unbelief or walk away from Jesus entirely. It just doesn't seem possible. And I'm not saying it's not logical at all for anyone to think the contrary. I'm just, at least this passage alone, you can feel the weight this has on my heart. So the question is, if you believe that a Christian can walk away from their salvation and lose everything Christ has purchased for them, at what point does the promise of God become null and void? Do they have to degenerate back into their old dead sinful self and then have the Spirit of God removed and then enter into a lifestyle of sin and unbelief? When does that occur? Because obviously it doesn't happen after enough sin because God has us on a tight leash as His children in a loving way. Don't make that all weird like, oh great, I'm asleep. I mean, He only lets you just like... Um, I only let my kids go so far. I'll let them do a lot, but there's sometimes I got to step in and intervene to keep them from hurting themselves. So, a born-again Christian can't, won't live in a lifestyle of sin. There's no such thing. I, I want to like help you understand like the categories I'm creating for you and removing. There is no such thing, biblically, as a born-again believer who sins their way out of salvation because they won't. John says they can't keep on sinning. Now, maybe a born-again believer can fall into sin, but will they keep on in an unrepentant, lack of conviction, habitual way of life kind of way? No. So if a Christian won't do these things because it's impossible, then guess what? If we see a person who practices a life of sin and wanders into unbelief, it's not because they rejected their salvation. It's because they were never truly born again. And they never had the abiding protection of God's spirit through receiving the gospel. Verse 10 says, by this it is evident who are the children of God. All this time, guys, John has worked with two categories those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. There's no in-between. There's no transition between child of God and child of the devil. Now, of course, uh, a child of the devil can become a child of God. But a child of God cannot divert back into a child of the devil. 
He's given you two categories. There's no in-between like, well, you were born of God and now you're kind of a child of the devil again. You're one or the other. You're one or the other. And I realize that when I speak in absolute statements like this, there's, there's potential for error. So I'm trying to be careful. Whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God. Practicing righteousness, right, is a mark of a believer. Nor is the one who doesn't love his brother. So now, as we enter into 1 John, the middle of 1 John 3, John is going to begin clarifying what he means by practicing righteousness. Because that's vague. Until you see the laws of God come in. Until you see a clear outline of what it looks like to love people. So loving God and loving people becomes synonymous with practicing righteousness. You're never practicing righteousness and not loving God or people. Or, we'll say it like this, you're never practicing righteousness while hating God or hating people. So polar opposite ideas. So, does 1 John 3 teach that a Christian will never, ever sin? No. It teaches that a true born-again Christian will not live in, practice sin as a habitual way of life. And your heart towards sin and your relationship with sin and your approach to sin is quite a strong reflection of who you belong to, child of God or child of the devil. If you guys didn't know, this is Above Reproach Ministry. Shifting gears, right? <laughs> AboveReproachMinistry.com is where you can find all our free resources. You can find our online Bible study skills courses. You can find our free study devotionals. You can find our online church on Discord. You can find um, the Bible study workshops we've done. All the topical messages I've preached. You can find the new monthly uh Bible study worksheets I'm releasing. All these free resources for those that want to learn how to read the Bible. Because honestly, look, what you need to know is that this ministry exists to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. So I don't just want to feed you. I want to teach you to feed yourselves. Um, and hopefully, like, you're learning tactics and, and skills along the way. And I'm I'm pausing to have teaching moments of here's how we read here. I hope that's helpful. Um, you can also get a copy of my book, Fruitful. Uh, if you guys want to learn how to live the essential, Fruitful, the essential keys to living the most abundant, satisfying Christian life this side of heaven. It's right here. You can get your copy on Amazon. Um, and let's say this. That's the only thing that costs money. Everything else is free because of generous supporters like you. All of you who give on a monthly basis through Patreon or, or one time you make all this content possible. The Bible study courses, the Bible study devotionals, the workshops, the sermons, the online community, um, the Bible study work. You make all of this completely free to everyone around the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And if you guys want to give to this ministry, I have a wife and two kids. This is my full-time job. You can give on the website. On our donate page, you can donate through your debit or credit card. You can give through PayPal. You can give through Cash App. You can give through Venmo. You can give through Patreon on a monthly basis. And my book is called Fruitful for those that are asking. 
You can give on a monthly basis through Patreon, $4 a month, $10 a month, $50 a month, um, or you can get some church merch. When you sign up for Patreon, okay, when you become a monthly supporter, you get a lot of exclusive benefits. You get access to my sermon notes, so all the sermon, all the notes that I use for these sermons, you get access to. Use however you want. Um, you get discount codes on our church merch, Above Reproach Apparel, so you can represent Jesus on your body. Create opportunities for evangelism, right? Got some dope designs. Uh, you also get a free copy of my book, physically or digitally, based on the tier you sign up with on Patreon. So uh, maybe you don't have to get a copy of my book. Maybe you can just sign up on a monthly basis, and you get a... Uh, a free copy of my book. But for those of you that are wondering what the book is, um, I'm presenting a training resource to believers. What I think most believers lack, most believers lack, is an understanding of the gospel, their identity and position in Christ, their purpose, and then the process God brings them through life. And so what I do in the book is I frame up your position, your process, and the purpose God has for your life I frame it up all with the gospel. So hopefully you can use that to disciple people. I, I, I made it to be a discipleship resource, uh, specifically a resource for new believers who want to know, like, I want to know the essential keys and I want to know, like, what is most helpful as a believer? What should I know? You should know who you are. You should know what God wants for you and you should know how he's going to work with you. Um, so all this is completely free um, besides the book. If you guys want to support this ministry and this has been a blessing to you, um, Thank you for those of you that give and support and make this possible and support my wife and two kids and all this content that gets uh, pushed across the world to lots of people. And uh, someone said that my sound is only coming out one ear, mono. Uh, if you can send me a message on how to fix that, I would love to. I'm, I don't know how to fix that. I'd love to fix that if, if uh, possible. So just tell me how to do that. I'm using OBS. I'm using uh, Restream and YouTube. So for those of you that are familiar with that, let me know how to possibly fix that because I, I don't know. I have no idea. All right. God bless you guys. Go check out AboveReproachMinistry.com and I'll see you guys later. Keep moving towards Jesus. Bye.